Okay. Hello, this is Eric Topol, and uh, this is a rare uh, privilege for me to interview my favorite epidemiologist, Dr. Michael Osterholm. He is the Regents Professor at the University of Minnesota. He's director of SIDRAP, which is certainly one of the leading entities around the world, public health. And uh, we've been friends for the last few years, which we'll, we'll talk about. So welcome, Michael. Such a great uh, privilege to have you today. Well, thank you. The honor really is mine. Uh, as uh, I have shared with you and others know very well, uh, you have been a real mentor to me and many others during this pandemic. And uh, I could never repay you adequately for all that you've helped teach me throughout these last three oh, years. Wow. It's been immeasurable. No, you're too kind. I think it's much different, the opposite way. I've learned so much from you because this isn't my area, as you well know, of uh, COVID and related matters. Um, I thought we'd start with, of course, right now things are relatively good for the pandemic in the United States and mostly around the world uh, with uh, relatively less cases, less hospitalizations and deaths. Um, but interestingly, um, obviously still people are getting infected. And maybe you can tell us uh, the recent uh, case that you went through. That would be enlightening. Yeah. Well, I think we're all trying to understand when the pandemic ends. And uh, as we've discussed many times before, we'll probably know that about a year after it ends. Then we'll say, yep, that was the end of it. Uh, don't for a moment think that at the end means that there won't be cases. You know, for every infectious agent that we think of in causing a pandemic, they still come back, whether it be influenza uh, or potentially coronaviruses, they will, they will continue to circulate. It's a matter of how many cases occur, how many people die. And I think that's an important point. There isn't really a definition for when a pandemic ends. It's, I guess it's just when you feel like it's over. And clearly the world has come to that conclusion already. You don't need a an epidemiologist or a politician to tell them that the pandemic's over, that they feel that. We're still seeing about 165 deaths a day in this country from COVID, so it's hardly gone away completely. Uh, but we do have to acknowledge that most of those deaths are in older individuals, people who have not been vaccinated recently with bivalent uh, boosters. And in that regard, we could surely even reduce the uh, illnesses further. I don't have any faith right now in the surveillance systems that have been set up to look at cases around the world. We've pretty much dismantled that, uh, and we are not testing people. It results in reports being made to public health agencies, whether in this country or anywhere else in the world. So I really look at uh, two other things. One is deaths, and even they're realizing that still is a challenge in terms of how complete death reporting is due to COVID. But then the, the other thing we're looking at, which has been really a one of the, you might say, public health revolution uh, during the pandemic, and I say revolution because it's really changed things, and that is uh, the issue of wastewater surveillance. And we've been able to ascertain in many areas of the world, in fact, with using wastewater surveillance, a much better sense of how much virus is in the community. And so just in following with your very thoughtful comment about uh, case numbers dropping, that's exactly what we're seeing in most locations in this country, too. We, for example, here in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area have seen a dramatic decrease uh, in wastewater activity in the last two months. So I think we're in a place right now where uh, I can hope it'll only get better. On the other hand, you know, I have a lot of respect for this virus, and frankly, we all ought to have a lot of humility 
We don't know if another variant will emerge that with given how much immunity we have in our population will somehow break through that and cause increase in surge in cases or whether this will become kind of the norm and we'll see less and less. Now, you asked me about my case. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I have to say that uh, I, I speak about this with, with really some trepidation in the sense mm. that I was not going to get this. Right. I had been very faithful throughout the course of the pandemic, wearing my N95 respirator when I was out and about. Uh, I had been fit tested. Uh, in addition, when we finally did socialize in our home, uh, we had a, what became affectionately known as the Osterholm rule. Uh, you could not have had no in contact with someone the, with COVID in the five previous days. Uh, you could have no symptoms yourself on the day of. And you had to test negative bilateral flow test within three to four hours of coming. And we would entertain small four to six party uh, parties. And it was going wonderful. And then on March 10th, the night of March 10th, uh, a colleague from work uh, came over with Fern and myself. The three of us had dinner. Uh, we went down our elevator in our building here, which were 31 stories up. No one else is in the elevator. And then we proceeded to go to a very small music venue where we wore our N95s. We were uh, some distance from any other people, and we were there for an hour and 45 minutes. And uh, literally two days later, almost 48 hours later, all three of us developed symptoms. Mm. Uh, none of us converted for another uh, 24 hours. And then at that point, we all three uh, tested lateral flow positive. And uh, then we went through the experience of the next seven to 10 days. Uh, we all three took Paxlovid. Uh, I took it and was starting to feel better after that fifth day. And then I kind of crashed. Mm. Uh, and at that point, I got a second uh, five-day course of Paxlovid, started to feel better. And uh, I'm ha I you know, was very happy to have this behind me. However, over the course of the last 10 days, I have really had uh, significant fatigue. Uh, you know, I'm not one that sleeps a lot, uh, and so I more than enough sleep. But uh, I can tell you there are multiple times in a day where I'm doing something, like even uh, doing what I'm doing right now, where I just feel like I just need to fall asleep. Uh, it's been really uh, a challenge. Uh, the other thing that happened, which was in retrospect a little bit more concerning than I realized at the time, there was a period at about day 10 to 14 into my illness, I started losing my uh, memory on many, many things of, you know, importance. Uh, I couldn't, for example, tell you what was that drink that uh, is a champagne orange juice combination. I couldn't find the word mimosa if my life depended on it. Uh, if somebody asked me who was in Sleepless in Seattle, I had to think about now the movie. Who was in it? I couldn't remember. And, I mean, in retrospect, I wasn't that concerned thinking, ah, it's not that bad. And it was actually quite remarkable. Uh, this lasted about two and a half, three weeks. And now I think, I think, at least according to those around me, I have gained most of my memory back, but now I have this fatigue picture. So uh, as much as I don't know where I picked up the virus, all three of us picked it up. And as much as uh, I feel like I have survivor's guilt right now in the sense that, you know, I'm not that concerned about getting infected in a public exposure, given I probably have some pretty good protection, at least for a few more weeks, um, but nonetheless, I, I think this potential fatigue issue is really a challenge. Yeah, the things that you're bringing up with this, um, like, for example, I know you had had um, the initial series and three 
boosters, including the bivalent. Was that sometime in September last year? Or? Yeah, it was seven and a half months before. Yeah. So, so, so that was, and I tried to get it at six months, the second. Uh, but in Minnesota, we actually have a registry. And so it's not just your white card that, you know, you could do it. And it wasn't, I was trying to do something illegal, but, you know, this vaccine is just sitting there. So I tried to get a, a, another bivalent at six months post my first one. And of course I was turned down. And then uh, five weeks after that, I, I got COVID. Yeah. And, and then of course, just recently, the FDA and CDC finally came to the conclusion that for people uh, of our age group, and immunocompromised, they certainly have the option that you've advocated for. And unfortunately, um, you weren't able to get at that time, although I suspect the protection, you might comment on that, Mike, that there is some protection against infection uh, for the first few months after a booster, sure. right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the studies that we've seen so far, at least, uh, and particularly from those from other countries where they have remarkable follow-up on databases, uh, there is some initial evidence of protection in those first weeks against getting infected and uh, even potential transmission, but that wanes, unfortunately, quickly, and it's likely B-cell-related immunity. And then I think as we all at least believe, the T-cell immunity, which uh, we're still all trying to understand and characterize, probably kicks in and gives us protection against serious illness, hospitalizations, and deaths. But as you and I have looked at, even then at six months out, uh, you start to see some potential waning of that. And I think that's why we have a real challenge right now. I've said many, many times, we can't boost our way out of this pandemic. And I meant that not because some of us wouldn't be willing to get a vaccine every six months, but the vast majority of the population would not. And we've even seen here with the first bivalent booster dose, which we know has provided good protection against serious, serious illness, hospitalizations, and deaths, Look at the very small proportion of the population that have taken that, less than 40%. Uh, and so it's, it's a challenge that how do we get people to keep getting vaccinated? Uh, a lot of people say, I'm done. I'm, I'm done with it. Right, right. Unfortunately, especially those who are at high risk, it's really unfortunate. Now, one of the things you've done recently, among many things, um, you covered the status of the pandemic today and some liabilities for the future. And you've been working on the future with the blueprint that you put together uh, for people, experts around the world to try to map out um, managing pandemic, preparing for the pandemic. Could you give us the skinny on that? Well, actually, uh, this was a report that uh, is relabeled the COVID wars put out by the COVID crisis group which was a loose affiliation of 34 individuals who had uh, agreed to help out developing basic materials with the hope that that would lead to a uh, post-pandemic commission, much like the commission we saw after 9-11. And then the person that uh, headed that up actually was the person who did head up the 9-11 commission also. And there was support from several foundations for this. When it became clear after almost a year of trying to pull together lessons learned, challenges to what we know and don't know, uh, the uh, U.S. government was not going to support uh, another commission, either at the, in the legislative side of the uh, government or in the executive branch. Both of them basically said, well, we're not really interested. I think that's been a major mistake. Uh, but this report, which is now out, does uh, address a number of the shortcomings that we have experienced with this pandemic. 
And again, you know, in a world where it's so partisan and everyone wants to blame someone for something, this was not meant to blame. This was meant to be what we classically call a hot wash, where we go back over an experience to learn from it. What could we have done differently? How could we have done it? What did we do right? How do we have to make sure that that's in place in the future? And so this plan is, is about that very thing. Now, at the same time, uh, I'm writing another book, uh, much like the one I did, Deadliest Enemies, Our War Against Killer Germs, in 2017, when I laid out what a pandemic might look like. And this one is really to address what do we need to learn from this pandemic for the next one? And I go into a bit more uh, in certain topic areas uh, than our report did, much more in depth as it relates to vaccines, public health actions, lockdowns, uh, all of those things. And so uh, I hope that in a you know a few months that will be available so that not only uh, does it lay out what the challenges were, but you know, given my public health experience of 48 years and having been through these, what do I think the lessons learned should be, which some are not included in the, the public uh, war book. I, I can't wait to read it. I mean, the roadmap, though, that you pulled together uh, was really extraordinary. And, of course, it addressed the things like uh, pan-coronavirus vaccine and, and so many others that we can uh, pursue, hopefully, uh, and be also templates for the future. Now, I, I want to go back now, since we were covering kind of the current and future status, but back in March 2020, you wrote that there would be this is March 2020 now, uh, there would be 800,000 deaths in the next 18 months from COVID. Talk about an oracle. I mean, obviously, no one would ever wanted that to see uh, be actualized. But how did you how did you know that, Mike? How did you know we were, we were in that in, in store for such a dreaded uh, outcome in an imminent period of time? Well, you know, let take a step back to December of 2019. You know, our center has a very active news team that uh, basically covers infectious disease news from around the world. Uh, even though it's inside of SIDRAP, there's a thick wall between it and me uh, from an editorial standpoint, so I don't have any control over it. But they notified me that they were picking up information that last week of December out of Wuhan about this emerging uh, outbreak of unexplained pneumonia. And... Uh, you know, at that point, we stayed on top of it. And of course, my first thought was, could this be a, a flu situation with an emerging flu pandemic? Or was it just more coronavirus? Uh, you know, I uh, right after 9-11, I spent uh, three years as a special advisor to then Secretary of Health and Human Services, Tommy Thompson. Uh, and I split my time between the University of Minnesota and uh, the government. And it was during that time that I actually participated actively in the first SARS outbreak that occurred mm -hmm. uh, with regard to the U.S. involvement. And then in 2012, I had been serving as an advisor to the royal family of the United Arab Emirates. And when MERS first emerged on the Arabian Peninsula, I went over and worked uh, on that issue. And then in 2015, when MERS exploded, literally, in Samsung Medical Center in Seoul, Korea, I was asked to come and I went to, over to Seoul and helped with that outbreak. So I had a, a pretty good feeling, I thought, for coronaviruses and, of course, influenza, something that I had been working on for 40 years. And so initially I was saying, I hope, boy, I hope this is a coronavirus because we know how to control that. They're not, it's not that infectious. 
even though the case fatality rates may be between 15 and 35%. Well, as you know, by the end of that first week in January, we had the data saying, yep, this was a coronavirus. But it was at that time that we had contacts in Wuhan and in Hong Kong, and we were basically getting information out and then, of course, following up with our colleagues in Singapore, uh, the old flu network, that was suggesting that this was a very different kind of coronavirus. This, there appeared to be substantial transmission among those who were asymptomatic as well as those who were symptomatic. And as we saw more and more transmission uh, outside of, of Wuhan, it reminded me a great deal of what we saw in 2009 with H1N1, where there, in the month after it was first discovered in Mexico, it was subsequently found in 128 different countries in just mm -hmm. one month. Mm. And, and it looked like this is what this coronavirus was doing. And so on January 20th, actually, our center put out a statement saying, get with it, world. This is the next pandemic. It is a coronavirus acting differently than MERS and SARS. My worst fear was that the case fatality rate may be as high as that. Well, over the course of the next uh, uh, few weeks, we got more and better information about what was going on. And there was just such a denial at the time. In fact, I went right. to JAMA. Uh, and to the editors of JAMA and said, can I do a perspectives piece on why the world has to wake up quickly? This is going to cause a pandemic. They not only turned me down, but the following week they ran a cartoon in JAMA, a one-pager on one column looking at COVID and coronaviruses on the right kind column looking at influenza. And they came to the conclusion, don't get distracted by this in co uh, coronavirus thing. It's all about flu. Wow. And so I think at wow. that time, uh, there was such denial that was going on. Uh, and so when I first made this statement, I actually did it by the kind of the back of the seat estimate. You know, I'm not a black box guy. I, in fact, I find black boxes often, uh, they sort of impress the hell out of you with their sophistication. And what they don't tell you is they have no clue what they're talking about. Um, and so I just basically did a back of the envelope calculation and not even realizing vaccine might or might not come into play. So, you know, I have to be honest and say it was, in some ways, uh, luck if, and uh, bad luck. Well, like yeah, that. I don't know. I think it's a lot of wisdom uh, mixed with that. But it's you know, I want, to add one, I want to add one other thing, though, Eric, because the thing that I will most remember probably in this pandemic is not all the hate mail that I received from so many as the days went on and even death threats. It was the feedback I got in that month of March mm. from colleagues who thought that I was over the top, that I had finally, you know, scared the hell out of people one too many times kind of thing. And it was amazing to me as much as we're critical of the politicians and what happened, and we surely should be. There were many of our colleagues who were equally in a state of denial, not wanting to believe that this was really happening. Oh, absolutely. Yes. So I think that's what I'll remember is uh, it's one thing to have some anonymous person tell you, you know, that you should be dead. It's another thing to have one of your colleagues say you're irresponsible. Yeah, you're not you're not kidding there. And, you know, especially with you, because, you know, everybody who's listening has seen you innumerable times on, you know, CNN, MSNBC, various news networks, and they know you come across with humility, unlike many other experts where, you know, we just don't know. And also the master of metaphors, uh, as far as I can tell about the eye of the hurricane and so many things like that. But 
The other thing I wanted to get into historically is something that brought us together that a lot of people still, it's been written about, but a lot of people still don't know. So back in the summer of 2020, you said, I'm going to organize a group, a group that eventually became known as the party planning group that we meet every Friday morning for an hour or so. And we talk about, well, there's a pandemic and related matters. So you, again, had this idea to bring this group together. And could you talk about that? Because it's amazing. Here it is, you know, two and a half years later, we met today. Uh, we're, yeah. we're continuing to meet. Tell, tell everybody about what that group, how, how you foresaw the need for it, and perhaps, you know, what do you think it's accomplished? Well, first of all, let me start out with uh, two caveats. Number one is, and thank you for your comments, but I realize the older I get, the more vulnerable I am to learning. And so I want to surround myself with people that can teach me, okay? Uh, the second thing is, is that uh, humility should be considered a requirement today of trying to deal with pandemic viruses. Because we have to acknowledge, we don't know what the next 210 mile an hour curveball is going to be. Uh, you know, I can remember a, a, a light bulb moment for me early in January of 2021 when vaccines were now flowing, but in you and I together, we wrote a piece on this, saw Alpha emerging out of Europe. Mm -hmm. And remember up until the, that time, we kept being told that, well, these variants and subvariants are really just nothing more than rings on a tree. They're just telling you how old the virus is. And with Alpha, we had clear and compelling evidence. Oh no, it had a lot to do with functionality, how infectious it was, et cetera. And that that could very well change the complexion. I remember very well uh, being on Meet the Press in January of, of 2021 and saying, I thought the darkest days of the pandemic were still ahead of us because of the number of people who were not vaccinated, the fact that this virus was going to continue to change. And of course, again, I caught a lot of heat for that. Nate Silver uh, all but uh, gutted me in public media for irresponsible. And of course, as you know, the vast majority of deaths occurred after that time. In right, the pandemic. right. But now to back up to your point and why I think some of the things that I was able to learn occurred was in the summer of 2020, uh, a colleague of mine who uh, very near and dear came to me and said that there is someone in the senior level of government that right now is making some major decisions, but really has no one around him he knows he can trust. Would you ever talk to him? And, and provide what information you can to kind of give him a sense off the record. Well, I thought, you know, actually it would be better because there's a team of people I think that could be uh, more helpful. I'm, on, I'm one voice and I surely don't proclaim to have the only voice. So I actually literally went to my, you might say magical list. Who are the people that I most respected and admired and who did I trust? And trust was huge, trust was huge. And as you know, you're on that list, uh, and and uh, it's now been publicly stated who Peggy uh, Hamburg's on it, Peter Hotez, Bruce Gallen, uh, Penny Heaton, and uh, and Bruce Gallen, and and uh, I'm missing someone. Uh, anyway, Ruth Brookelman, and yeah. you know we we meet on every Friday, and our discussions are incredibly incredibly thoughtful. Uh, they are honest. And there's a trust in that group, you know, what we share stays there. And I, I so appreciate that. And so from that perspective, uh, that will continue. And I will continue to learn from all of you. 
And uh, I think if there was anyone lesson that I came out of from this pandemic is just the value of having that kind of collective brain trust that can come in, ask questions. Many times we didn't have the answers, but we surely got the questions out, which then gave us opportunities to learn the answers. And, uh, and the fact that we could do it, and you and I both knew that our comments were going to stay within the context of that group. Yeah, and we had to keep it uh, anonymous with this name of the party planning group just because uh, we didn't want people to know what this was. Yeah, at, at that doing. time, it was interesting. I have to tell you, um, my administrative assistant was out one day during that time, early time period, and someone else uh, was uh, sitting in. And they saw in my schedule an hour blocked off for party planning, and it was right at the holiday season. So there was an assumption made in my in our center that I was just planning this big holiday party and that nobody knew about it yet. And <laughs> it said party planning, and that rumor got spread got was spread throughout the entire center. And I had to self correct, you might say, and explain we can still have a party, but that wasn't what this was about. Yeah, well, it, it's been an amazing ride and it continues. But, you know, we were there from well before there were vaccines all the way through, you know, to the current time. And you can imagine all the different things that have been happening in the background and that we were discussing, exchanging ideas, communicating with uh, public health agencies, um, the White House and all sorts of other um, things along the way. So it's been a privilege for me, not just to have this conversation, but over these last two and a half years to work with you on that. It's been extraordinary and to learn from you and our colleagues. Well, this has been so much fun for me, uh, Mike. I, I just am struck by your ability to weave together, you know, the, the wisdom you've drawn from all these experiences over four decades of working in this space with the ability to be humble and know that, you know, you're not the smartest guy in the room. No one's the smartest guy in the room that you want to have other people, you know, whether, uh, wherever they come from, like, for example, when you put together the roadmap and you brought together, you know, people from all over the world, um, to think, to exchange ideas about how we can do better, um, for this and future pandemics, because undoubtedly we're going to be facing those. So maybe um, as we wrap up, could you just give us your sense? The, the, there's obviously climate change. There's all the things that have been done to the environment. And this pandemic, which we all want, wish to be you know, put aside, which the virus will be here for many years to come. But what are your expectations since, unfortunately, your predictions have come too close to real? Uh, or real, actual, precise, about the next pandemic? Uh, what yeah. it, Will it be influenza? Will it be in the next few years? What are your thoughts about where we're headed? Well, you know, Eric, uh, let me just start out and say thank you for your very kind comments. Um, I think one of the things I learned at SIDRAP a long time ago is the very name, the Center for Infectious Research and Policy. And I knew very early in my career that well-designed, well-conducted, even very important research means nothing if you can't translate that into active policy that makes a difference. At the same time, policy, if it's not informed by good research, can be dangerous. And so I think what you're highlighting here is how we try to bring groups of individuals together to merge research and policy together. And you just talked about the coronavirus vaccine roadmap where 54 of the world's leading experts, including you, 
participated in that, and we developed a very, very specific uh, outline for a roadmap of what needs to be done to get us to new and better coronavirus vaccines, uh, and ones that basically uh, will be hopefully broadly protective for any future coronavirus activity that occurs. So I can never say enough about the ability to bring shareholders together. Uh, collective wisdom will win every time against a wisdom. And I think that that's one thing I learned. In terms of where we're going, you know, I, I have to just think back into human history. And when you think about the fact that in 1900, average life expectancy in this country is about 43 years, and today, even with the pandemic, it's about 76, 77 years. For every three days we've lived in the last century and 20 plus years, we've gained one day of life expectancy. Mm -hmm. That takes us all the way back to the 80,000 generations to the caves. And I think what we haven't fully understood is, is that we lived in a world where infectious diseases had major impact on why we didn't live to be uh, as a, a median age life expectancy uh, up into the 70s, but rather uh, into the 40s. And I think what we're facing today is a world that is moving us back to those uh, numbers, not forward. For example, if you look at just the situation right now of world population, 8 billion people on the face of the earth, uh, you look at you know, what's happening with megacities around the world. You know, I, I remember early in the days of HIV AIDS, making a trip to Kinshasa Zaire, which mm. uh, no longer Zaire, of course, where it was a large rural city. Today, it's 18 billion people. Mm. When you look at the median age of Africa, it's 19 years. When you look at what we've done with human population and how we have reached out to every corner of the world seeking food, bushmeat, etc., uh, you know, Ebola has been a problem likely for many, many, many decades. But when it was in very rural, isolated villages of Africa, you know, if 25 or 30 people got infected and died, no one even knew about it. Now, today, with the urbanization of Africa, you can see widespread uh, transmission quickly in these areas. And this is true for all parts of the world. Think about avian influenza and the need today to feed 8 billion people. We have relied on, uh, on birds, on, on the fastest, the, that as an animal species is the fastest conversion of energy to protein on earth. And so look at the billions of birds we're raising, which now provide for a new reservoir for flu viruses. I could go down the list. Look at how climate change is moving uh, in terms of precipitation levels and temperatures that now move mosquito populations to places of existence we didn't see before and then added transportation in. Think about all of history till World War II, the four serotypes of dengue virus existed in four different mm. regions of the world. Mm. It wasn't until post-World War II that now they all exist virtually where each one exists. Why do we have dengue hemorrhagic fever? It's because of that. And so I think that the final piece I would say is, yes, pandemic's gonna happen again. We are going to see more of what we've just experienced. And frankly, it could be a lot worse. We didn't see 15 to 35% mortality rates like you might with SARS or MERS. Instead, we saw just high transmission levels. There is nothing to stop the next coronavirus from being transmitted like SARS-CoV-2 
and killing like MERS or SARS. Mm, mm. And so I think we have to be mindful of that. And then the final last thing I would just paint, this is our climate change issue in infectious diseases. It's antimicrobial resistance. It's amorphic. People all know it's there, what to do about it. And we are watching ourselves literally devolve back into a pre-pandemic era of, of, of antibiotic resistance. Meaning that, you know, before our grandparents were around, people died often from common, in, you know, cuts, bruises, et cetera, because they didn't have antibiotics. Look what's happened since that time. They've played a huge role. And sure. now we're going to watch that, uh, you know, we're allowing that. And then last but not least, I just have to say, this misinformation, disinformation on vaccines is huge. I think that we're going to continue to see increasing challenges with populations around the world no longer willing to take childhood immunizations or even other adult immunizations just because of the disinformation. So when you add that all up, it's job security, unfortunately, for a lot of us. And that's a sad commentary. It's a real sad yeah, commentary. Well, and as you pointed out so well just before we got started uh, with AI, it has the potential to amplify the myths and disinformation to unprecedented levels, and it's already so you know horrific as it is. So, you know, um, it's bad enough that I can just say that there are times I read articles in newspapers, and I'll get halfway through a quote, and I'll say, "Who the hell said that?" According to Osterholm, and of course, <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> right what? there, you go. What are we going to do when you and I end up on these bots, you know, where there it's Eric Topol saying to the world, you know, I, I, I was wrong. Vaccines aren't any good. Yeah. And people are going to see that. And it's not you. Right. That right. Me a lot. That concerns me a lot. No, it, it was uh, deep fakes. And now it's going to another uh, ultra level of that. It's pretty scary, actually. So with all the things that we've been talking about, whether it's a potent virus or a tech like AI is becoming with generative AI, um, we've always got to look at both sides of this and and be prudent, uh, to put yeah. it mildly. Well, this has been fun. Thank you. And I thank can't you. thank you enough. I, I, I would like to talk to you all day, but we've got a good a lot in there in a half hour. And yeah. I know we'll get a lot of uh, interactions from the folks that are listening. Mike, thanks and looking forward to extending all our communication and friendship. You're a gift to all ahead. of us. You're a, you're a gift to all of us. Thank you. Oh, thank you. That's much too kind. <laughs>